0: Well, I've never felt that we ought to be perceived as being opposed to everything.
1: Mitch McConnell is one of the 19 Republican senators who voted with Democrats on the massive infrastructure bill. People are calling it a political miracle, but the reality is a little bit more complicated. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 11th. Later in the show, we are going to hear a story about a dog who has a problem.
2: I can think of absolutely no imperfections in this dog, but there is one thing that he does that has made my life really, really complicated. And that is that he hates music.
1: But first, on Tuesday afternoon, the Senate passed a $1 trillion infrastructure package with votes from 50 Democrats and 19 Republicans.
2: On this vote?
1: The yeas are 69, the nays are 30. The bill as amended is passed.
3: So we saw something that I will say a lot of reporters, a lot of politicians up here, a lot of staff thought never would be done. That's Mike DeBonis.
1: He covers Congress for The Post.
3: Which is to see a bipartisan multi-hundred-billions-of-dollar infrastructure bill pass the United States Senate on a bipartisan vote. This
1: bill is being hailed as a moment of unity for the Senate. Finally, politicians are finding common ground in building roads and repairing bridges and expanding broadband and creating American jobs.
0: I want to thank a group of senators, Democrats and Republicans, for doing what they told me they would do. The uh, death of this legislation was mildly premature, as reported. They said they're willing to work in a bipartisan manner, and I want to thank them for keeping their word. That's just what they did.
1: But the reality of this bill is a lot more complicated, and both sides have a hidden agenda. Democrats want to pass another piece of legislation that would expand Medicare, combat climate change and boost the federal safety net. All things that Republicans refuse to join them on. And Republicans view this infrastructure bill as a way to constrain Democrats in the long run.
3: As you imagine, Mr. Witt, there's, a, there's been a lot of curiosity about your, your thinking and your strategy.
1: In an interview with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday, Mike started to get a sense of what Republican strategy is here and how this moment of bipartisanship might not be what it seems.
3: So I was able to sit down with Senator McConnell in his office literally just moments before he went to the floor and cast his vote for the infrastructure bill on Tuesday. I'm coming in assuming based on your statements that you're planning to to support this and vote for this. Correct me if if I'm mistaken in that. I am. It
0: it reminds me, if I may, of the way the uh, Democrats and a lot of you guys as well truncated what I said back in 2010 when I said that I wanted to make President Obama one-term president. Only Bob Woodward reported the rest of what I said, which was, That in the meantime, we had important business to do for the country, and we needed to work together to do it, after which Joe Biden and I negotiated three major
3: deals. So interviewing Mitch McConnell can be a frustrating thing because he is a very disciplined politician. He knows exactly what he wants to say and how he wants to say it. You know, I think that he had an interest in explaining what his thinking was, what his strategy was, and, you know, why he defied expectations in a lot of ways to, you know, support this process and ultimately support the bill.
0: Well, I, I've never felt that we ought to be perceived as being opposed to everything. Um, the 50-50 Senate, and there are a narrow majority in the House. The American people evenly divided. When they elect either divided government or a unified government that's as close as this one, I think what they're saying to us is, we know you have a lot of important disagreements, but look for the things you can agree on and do those, and infrastructure is a good example of that.
3: He put it in political and policy terms in the sense that he's looked at the polling. He knows that Republican voters support federal investment in infrastructure. It's one of the issues where there is, in fact, bipartisan agreement that the federal government has a role and Republican voters would would support this.
0: And unlike everything else the administration is trying to do this year, this is actually important. I mean, this is what we ought to do.
1: And one of the things that you've pointed out is just how much of a reversal this is for McConnell, because, I mean, three months ago he was saying
0: that, quote, Yeah, 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. And the fact that now he
1: is totally game to work with them together on passing this bill, it's it's pretty surprising.
3: Well, I, I will say this. What he sort of followed that up by saying in, in in comments the next day was, well, if Joe Biden is going to be a moderate, the sort of moderate Democrat that he ran on being— will be there to govern with him. If he's going to be far left, Bernie Sanders liberal, we're not. And I think that he's, he's tried to stick to that. And I think his case to me in the interview was, this was one area where Joe Biden has shown that he wanted to do a moderate product that respected the ideology and the politics of elected Republicans to get a bipartisan product. And, you know, the essence of that, you know, that he talked about was he had one red-line demand.
0: Uh, Which is to not revisit the 2017 tax bill. But I felt like this was a place where the president was trying to do something in the middle that was worth doing for the country. And I encouraged our members who who worked on this
3: all along the way. The 2017 Republican tax bill that you know, cut corporate and high earner taxes. But he also made clear that there there is a larger strategic objective here. And he sees, he looks at the Democratic Party of today and he sees the pressure that is building on congressional leaders like uh, Chuck Schumer from, you know, liberal Democrats, the, you know, activist community who have been sick and tired of not seeing the Senate deal with, you know, the major issues of the day. Um, And that, all of that energy and frustration has been channeled in the last eight months into this push to change the rules of the Senate, in particular, the filibuster, the 60 vote supermajority rule that, you know, Republicans have used and frankly, Democrats have used to, as a minority to block majority legislation.
0: Uh, I will remind you that the previous president carved on me frequently about trying to change the supermajority threshold for legislation. I had a one word answer on every occasion. No
3: and I think he he has watched this campaign snowball to the point where really, there's only two Democratic senators who are publicly vocally opposing it, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. If you take him at his word, he believes that this is, in fact, you know, the essence of the Senate. This is what makes the Senate uh, distinct from the House is that the minority has real rights and can it, it has the power to really shape an outcome in a way that you don't in the House where the majority rules.
1: So basically you're saying that, according to McConnell, the incentive here for Republicans to support this infrastructure bill was partially about infrastructure and building things and repairing roads is an interest that Republicans have. It's something that they have demonstrated that they want to pass. But also this is about undercutting that argument about the filibuster and basically saying, look, when we really try, when we really seek to negotiate, we can pass things. The Senate does work. And therefore, there isn't any need for Democrats to be running around talking about getting rid of the filibuster, because if they just followed the process properly, that we could actually pass meaningful things.
3: I think he and a lot of other Republican senators see this as a demonstration that the Senate actually can confront problems in the country and, through a process of negotiation, get to an outcome that can win a, a broad bipartisan majority.
1: This bipartisan infrastructure bill is still a long ways away from becoming law. Progressive Democrats in the House are trying to use this moment to lobby for other parts of their human infrastructure agenda, which includes money for universal pre-K, expanding Medicare and fighting climate change. All of that stuff is supposed to be in a whole other bill that progressive Democrats want to pass first.
3: President Biden, Speaker Pelosi, Chuck Schumer have all declared that they are moving in parallel. Uh, we we're not going to do one without the other. You know, immediately after the infrastructure bill passed on Tuesday, the Senate went directly into the uh, a budget debate that sets up this this other bill. Nancy Pelosi has said time after time, we're not passing the infrastructure bill till we pass this other bigger bill. A whole host of Long-time Democratic policy agenda items. So, you know, this is you know a matter of internal politics for the Democratic Caucus, in particularly in the House. There's just a large number of progressive Democrats who are not interested in passing a bipartisan product unless you get this larger bill with all of you know, for lack of a better term, Democratic goodies in it that they've been running on and advocating for for years and years and years.
1: But then on the flip side, will Republicans vote for this infrastructure bill if they know that Democrats are also going to use it to pass all the things that they want?
3: So this has been sort of a sore point all along. You know, to be honest, Republicans have had in their mind a strategic argument, which is if we do this infrastructure bill, we believe that Number one, we can reduce the overall level of spending that Democrats are ultimately going to enact. And number two, it's going to make it harder for Democrats to pass this partisan bill. It's going to take some of the leverage away from progressives. It's going to give more leverage to moderate members to reduce or perhaps even defeat entirely this this massive Democratic budget bill.
1: So it seems like there could be a trade-off here for Biden, that in getting this infrastructure bill, that was a big priority for him going into office, that it's also making it more difficult to get things that progressives are more excited about, like a voting rights bill or police reform or more significant action on climate change. Uh, things that I think a lot of voters are going to hold him accountable for if he doesn't get done. So I wonder how you think this trade-off might work for Biden.
3: So if you're going to evaluate that trade-off, I think you need to sort of assess a couple things. One of them is, what were the chances, absent an infrastructure deal, that the filibuster would have been eliminated and it would have opened the door to do all this other stuff? And I, I think that's really uncertain. I think that this handful of senators who have resisted changes, in particular, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, they've never really demonstrated any curiosity about killing the filibuster. Now they're really not. This infrastructure deal, clearly they feel emboldened to stick to their guns and say, you know, we can work together. There's no reason for rules changes. And, you know, frankly, that probably spells doom for things like the voting rights legislation, which Republicans are going to block regardless, and Manchin and Cinema seem no more inclined to reassess their positions on that now. Based on the public statements, what we know about what people are thinking, this isn't a bad outcome for Joe Biden. He gets his number one domestic policy. He has a pretty darn good shot of getting through an even larger economic bill that touches all sorts of things from free community college to climate change to, you know, child tax credit subsidies you know if that comes at the cost of voting rights if that comes at the cost of you know police reform that may be a price he's very willing to pay and i think that there's people in his administration who say well there's things we can do on the executive level not involving congress to sort of mitigate that and i think that that's the attitude right now
1: Mike DeBonis reports on Congress for The Post. Alexis Diao produced this story. We'll be right back.
3: I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday.
1: And now, one more thing from art and architecture critic Phil Kennicott. So he, like a lot of us, has been spending way more time at home with his dog during the pandemic. And he brought us this delightful story about his dog's reaction to one of his beloved hobbies. So I'll do the
2: the opening, which is the aria, to the Goldberg Variations, just the first half of it, um, which is kind of a slow, beautiful, stately piece. (laughs) So, the main character here is my dog Nathan, with whom I've lived for eight years. He is a wonderful dog. He's a big 60 pound shaggy mix of border collie and Newfoundland. I can think of absolutely no imperfections in this dog, but there is one thing that he does that has made my life really, really complicated. Um, and that is that he hates music. And he hates the piano in particular, and he really, really hates Bach's Goldberg Variations. And this is a piece that I've been learning how to play for many, many years. It's a piece I absolutely love. And he cannot stand it. It it causes him um, kind of physical, mental anguish to hear the music. If I have on kind of generic pop music in the car, he doesn't respond. He just kind of goes to sleep and ignores it. And the same thing's true with a lot of classical music. So light orchestral stuff doesn't bother him. But as we get closer to anything that sounds like a piano, he gets more and more annoyed. And as we get closer to, in particular, Baroque music and Bach, then he just really lets me have it when he hears it. My him; was about three months old and I was learning the music at the time. And when I first got him, he was, he was spending his sleeping time in a crate. And eventually I noticed that he was howling from the crate when I played and I would come down to check to make sure there was nothing wrong. And there wasn't. And he would stop howling the minute I stopped playing the piano. So I had a theory and my theory was that because I was learning this one particular piece when he first came into my house, that maybe he associated the trauma of being in a strange place, being taken from his mother, his litter, with that music. And I wanted to explore it. I mean, that was a kind of poetic idea. That was my projecting onto him a kind of human uh, emotional construct. But when I started digging into it and speaking to some people, animal behaviorists, people who study animal cognition, it became clear that in fact it was possible that he could recognize a particular piece of music, and that it could cause him anxiety or, or pain. Then the question became well, what kind of aversion is he having? The way I've I've always phrased it to myself is is a question. When he howls at the music of Bach, is he saying, This hurts? meaning this is like physically painful to me, stop, stop. Or is he saying something more like I don't like this piece or play something different. One of the interesting ones that I talked about is what's called the cephalic index. And that's the ratio of the width and the length of the dog's head. And as it turns out, that's gonna impact how music hits their ears and how they process it. So my dog has got a long snout. That may make the way he experiences very high sounds different than the way, say, a French bulldog experiences music.
1: So Phil never actually got to the bottom of why Nathan hates this music so much. But he did stop playing Bach in front of Nathan.
2: So when it comes to kind of shutting down the piano when he's around, Nathan has really sort of won that battle. It, it's just if he hears even a little bit, I mean, he's he's actually made his way through a screen door and come to the room that I am in to tell me to stop playing Bach. Um, so he's really, really serious about it.
1: Phil Kennicott is the art and architecture critic for The Post. Nathan is a very good boy. No dogs were harmed in the making of this story, which was produced by Ariel Plotnick. To see a video of Nathan reacting to Phil playing piano, we'll have a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.